0: So I want to talk about your piece, The Objectivist Aesthetics, Art, and the Needs of Conceptual Consciousness, but I wonder if you can just say a little bit about uh, the overall collection. We've talked about it before with Greg, um, but from your perspective, what what is the book and why is it important?
1: The book is a systematic and comprehensive uh, discussion of Ayn Rand's place in the history of philosophy for those who are serious about studying ideas and how they affect both the individual and the culture in which he lives. It's the first book of its kind. I hope there'll be several more as the years go by because Ayn Rand is a thinker of immense power and richness. The popular conception of her as a novelist or pop philosopher, is so off base that i don't have the words to describe it her philosophy extends not just through metaphysics epistemology ethics politics and aesthetics but into and informing the view of psychology economics history and other fields so what this book does is begin to establish her as an important thinker of our era, or indeed any era.
0: Now, your uh, contribution covers her theory of art, and I wonder if you might say at the the outset, why is art even part of philosophy? I I think that strikes many people as, uh, it leaves them scratching their head a bit.
1: Art is not part of philosophy, but the philosophy of art is part of philosophy. The reason is that the nature of art in Ayn Rand's theory <clears throat> is to concretize the rest of philosophy. It's to present in perceptual form or in the form of a story, in the case of literature, an outlook on life a view of what the artist thinks is important about life, about man, about reality. So without art, philosophy becomes a theoretical, overly abstract discipline. Art is, Ayn Rand said, the engineering of the soul. It's the building of a model of a philosophy of life and putting it in a way that the viewer or listener or reader can experience as if he were looking at something or listening to something in the outside world.
0: Now, Ayn Rand talks about art as a need, and a lot of what you write in your piece is about art as a need, and I wonder if you could explain what she means by that, and then how, what, what need art is really fulfilling.
1: It's a psychological need. It's a need of man's consciousness. Because man, man's basic means of cognition is sensory perception, and because philosophy deals with immensely abstract topics, is a, psych, a psychological need to see, to perceive, what the philosophy would mean in action not just a philosophy but your philosophy the artwork that's personally important to you is the artworks that echo and resonate with your own philosophy of life and the important thing to communicate is that everybody does have a philosophy of life and that it's central to his identity The artworks that a person responds to are those that share his outlook on reality. So it's important cognitively in that it shows him what his outlook really means in practice. And it's important uh, emotionally because it shows... uh, that one is striving to achieve. It, it, shows, it reaffirms when one is in danger of losing it the possibility of living in one's ideal universe. There's a very good quote um, in the, uh, Ayn Rand's uh, writings that's in the chapter. I'm going to search for it here now. see if I can get it, and have a little difficulty with word, so the essence of it is in the midst of the struggles and frustrations and contradictions one runs across an ordinary existence, man is in danger of getting swamped with negative concretes, with things that are not from his universe so to speak and art gives him the possibility of feeling for a moment that he's living in his kind of universe that's emotionally very important and that's why people love the art that they love Now, bear in mind that when i talk about art i'm not just restricting it to painting and sculpture because a lot of people are not particularly responsive to painting or sculpture. But everybody's responsive to music and everybody's responsive to literature. Literature embraces also for those in the more pop culture bent. Movies and uh, TV shows. So everybody has movies they love and they see over and over again. Music that they play over and over again. And that same kind of life-affirming experience is available in all the arts once one gets familiar with the medium.
0: Now, you said something that uh, seems important but would also strike, I think, a lot of people as controversial, and that's that everybody has a philosophy, that philosophy is in some sense inescapable. And I think most people think the exact opposite, that it's mostly useless. And so could you say a little bit about what philosophy is and in what sense everybody has one?
1: Everybody has a basic outlook on themselves and on life and nature of existence. Um, I give some examples of a homespun type in the chapter. I'm in charge of my life versus I'm the product of others or uh, I can understand things versus uh, who knows what is true, what is false, or uh, I can be a good person versus I'm and I'll always be, I'm bad and I'll always be. Uh, the, everybody draws conclusions growing up about the nature of life, what life has to offer him, and they are life shaping. If you believe that you have no control over yourself and the actions that you take, you're going to be a different kind of person, live a different kind of life, have a string of failures and frustrations and pain and suffering. Whereas if you believe I am the captain of my soul, as the poem puts it, I shape myself, I'm responsible for myself, I can be what I want to be, that's going to make you a fundamentally different person who's able to achieve things and able to be happy and confident. So it's in those forms that even a child, even a four-year-old, has conclusions about, I'm competent, I'm able, the world is a clean, clear place versus the opposite.
0: So then if what art is doing is it's making our philosophy concrete, real, so that, it, you know, we can see it in action, and then it provides us with that emo- emotional fuel where we can kind of live uh, in our ideal world, how is it that art does that? What is it about art that allows it to do that versus, you know, a, a philosophic treatise, let's say?
1: Or a news story.
0: Right, right.
1: Something journalistic, as she would It does it by being selective. Everything that the artist puts into his artwork, every aspect, every brush stroke, every adjective, every note or chord is selected by the artist because it enhances the overall impact of the work because it's the kind of thing that belongs in his kind of universe rather than than being random. So it's the selectivity of art that accounts for its ability to reach us, to convey a sense of life and a full philosophic outlook. Uh, I would put it in this way. An artwork presents a laboratory experiment, in effect, allowing us to draw a conclusion about these major topics. It sets up a contrast. It's not just selectivity, but it's contrast that enables us to make a generalization from it about what the artist is saying about large topics, large issues. So, for instance, on contrast, in uh, literature, you'll have the hero and the villain. In uh, painting, you'll have darks and lights. You'll have things in the foreground, things in the background, things that are perhaps sharp and things that are slightly out of focus. Uh, In sculpture, you will have the uh, things that... top and things at the bottom. You'll have things that are uh, stressed and given a lot of detail and things that are shown more abstractly. By such means, the artist guides us to the conclusion that he wants us to reach in the way of setting up. It's the same principle as if I wanted to teach you what A uh, prime number was in mathematics. I could give you a definition, the prime number is a number that's divisible only by one and by itself. But immediately, to give it any kind of reality, I would have to give you examples. For example, 8 is divisible by 4 and by 2, but 7 isn't divisible by anything except by 1 and by 7. The same is true of five, it's only divisible, or 19, it's only divisible by itself and by one. It has no factors other than those trivial ones. And you see how much greater reality that gives when you set up a contrast The things that I'm trying to explain to you are in category A, as opposed to, in contrast to, examples like this in category B. So the means is to follow the nature of human conceptual cognition, even perceptual cognition for that matter. Follow the nature of consciousness, which is to selectively set up a situation in which only one conclusion about life, in this case, can be drawn. In the book, I give an example of the really um, simplified... Hollywood storyline, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. And I asked, well, what kind of philosophical abstractions could you draw from such a trivial thing as that? And I contrast it with boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets cancer and dies. And you see what a tremendous difference it would make in the presentation of the view of what life has to offer, if you had the first story or the second story. People want to, most people, want to experience heroes. They want to experience heroes succeeding. Think of the recent movie, The Martian, uh, which the hero is left behind on the planet Mars. And has to figure a way to survive and then to contact the home base to let them know that he's still alive and there so they can rescue him. That is a story of man against nature, which spotlights the ingenuity of the mind and has a happy ending. If it didn't, people wouldn't want to see it. They want a happy ending because it reaffirms their if not conviction, their hope, that life offers success as a possibility.
0: Well, that leads me uh, to—I wanted to ask about something that was really fascinating in your paper. So um, Einar makes the point, and I might not formulate it right, so please uh, correct me, that the standard for an artist, what he chooses to show— is going to be what he regards as important, or as you put it in the paper, me- metaphysically significant. And I always that always perplexed me a bit. Like, how what would, a, how does a person decide what they regard as important in reality, uh, as against something true or false or or good or evil? And you have some really interesting things to say about that. And I wonder if you could elaborate on the answer to what she means by important. Well, she says that what's
1: important is what's deserving of attention. So there's certain things that go on in life that you decide or automatically respond to with. This is insignificant. This is unimportant. This is trivial. I can ignore this. So, for instance, uh, the feeling on the bottom of your foot right now, you don't pay any attention to, Uh, all kinds of details about life, which are metaphysically no different than any others, doesn't have to be about yourself, let me look around my room. Well, there's uh, a picture I have that's tilted at a slight angle, Uh, it's not off-tilted, off-kilter, but it's leaning back more than the one that's next to it because it's on my bookshelf. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to me. Maybe if it was hanging on the wall and it was a kilter, it would matter to me. Why would? Why the difference? Because on the bookshelf, it's informal. It's... Uh, inherent in putting something up on a bookshelf and leaning it back against varying with books, and it's going to be that way. But if you hang something on the wall, if I do, I consider it important and I don't want to see it uh, awry which would suggest that I don't value it or that it's not important that it looked the way it was intended to look. So there are all kinds of things that you um, are confronted with stimuli and objects and so forth and according to your premises you either pay attention to them or not and what you consider extremely important is things that go to the core of your being which is what art does uh, and um, the artist eliminates those unimportant things from his depiction and stresses the ones that he considers important. There's an interesting story in this regard about uh, Ayn Rand talking to one of her early followers in the 50s. He said, if I were out on a date pouring wine for my date, and I would probably spill some, and I would be embarrassed, and it would mess up the date for me. If John Galt were pouring the wine, he wouldn't spill any. So is this really realistic? And her answer is John Galt might spill the wine, although I wouldn't include that in the story. But if there were real John Galt, he might spill the wine, but it wouldn't be important to him. He wouldn't consider it a reflection on himself or the nature of life. He would ignore it. In art, one doesn't just ignore it, one omits it.
0: Um, Two concepts that are kind of key to her theory of art, but are also, um, I think, hard sometimes to wrap one's head around are what she calls metaphysical value judgments and sense of life. And now you've basically explained these concepts, I think, but I wonder if you can connect what you've said uh, explicitly to them.
1: Yeah. The easy one is sense of life. And I can explain what it means, although it means what it says, a sense of life. Not so much anymore, but it used to be the case that you could go for years and years without hearing a song that was important to you when you were young. Now there's so many golden oldies that everything's familiar. But probably the listeners have had the experience of hearing a song from their teenage years, well, when they're well into adulthood, that they haven't heard since then and takes them back. In such a situation, I think what we experience is this is what it was like to be me alive in that time. There's an immediate transporting of yourself back, not to the, to the concrete things that were going on, although that can be evolved, but what it felt like to live through those teenage years. That is an issue of what your sense of life was in in those periods. In the present, it's hard to isolate your own sense of life because it's omnipresent. It's like tasting water or smelling the air. It's always there, and there's no contrast. Since consciousness works by contrast, it's very hard to find something to contrast with what it's like to be me. You can't go to, well, what is it like to be Joe? And then I can contrast that with what it's like to be me. You can't really experience what it's like to be Joe. Only Joe can experience that. However, you can observe Joe. You can infer what it must be like to be Joe. He's always got an expression that says, I'm about to be hit. He's got a flinching expression and his face. Everything he says is prefaced by, well, unless I'm wrong, I think, or it seems to me that... So he's a very timid person. Let's say you're not. You don't experience that at all. You can see the contrast in that way, but it's not the same as when you listen to a piece of music that just grates on you versus uh, one that sends you into Rhapsody. So A sense of life is a, she calls it an emotional equivalent of metaphysics. All emotions come from ideas, from conclusions about values that you form. Your deepest emotions, which she calls sense of life emotions, come from what she calls metaphysical value judgments. That is, conclusions you've drawn about life as such the kind that i talked about i can be the person i want to be i can do whatever i want or i have to obey my parents i have to be a, a good church follower i have to follow the rules i have to paint inside the square as it's commonly put um so the um basic point is that the emotions of the sense of life come from certain basic conclusions that one has formed about life, and that is, the, she calls metaphysical value judgments. The thing I'd like to clarify is it's not values in the nature of reality, that is, reality just is, it isn't good or bad that metaphysical value judgments really pertain to what you can expect out of life. Is life an adventure that's going to offer you delights, excitements, challenges that you can overcome, like the Martian movie portrays, or is life a series of trudges through duties and obligations and frustrations and pains like medieval painting and sculpture presents. So the metaphysical value judgments are deep value judgments about whether you can achieve your values or not in reality, whether you are able to be the kind of person you want to be and achieve the things you want to achieve and experience happiness or not. So it's about the metaphysical value judgments are about what life has to offer in principle, not what my day was like today.
0: So I have two more questions. One, I wonder if briefly you could cover Ayn Rand's, objection to modern art, which uh, certainly in the visual arts, I think, remains the the dominant form of what we see.
1: Well, it's not modern art, per se, because she loved a couple of paintings of Salvador Dali and a lot of the paintings of Jose Manuel Capaletti, who is a a modern Spanish painter. It's non-objective art that she objects to. Because the nature of art is to present something that you can respond to as if it were real. What non-objective art does, like Jackson Pollock action paintings or Gertrude Stein word salad, what non-objective art does that makes it non-objective is it gets rid of the object. There's nothing there. To respond to and is presented as if it's some kind of higher thing that only the elite can respond to, the people of higher sensibilities, and therefore uh, it it therefore attacks and degrades actual art by claiming equality with it. Now she made the point, this was. Orally, for instance, I heard her in a lecture say that some of the non-objective, quote, painting, quote, would be decent design. There is an aesthetic element to design, as in industrial design. I think of the Apple products, which are beautiful and well-crafted, and you like to hold them if it's an iPhone. You like to look at them. Even the packaging is well-designed. There is an aesthetic element to that which follows from her view of art confirming the efficacy or disconfirming it of man's mind and man's consciousness. But without a utilitarian function to support that design, put into a frame and hung on the wall... I don't mean a picture of an iPhone. I mean just smears and blobs or lines and colored rectangles. It's empty. It's uh, It has no meaning. It It gets its meaning by being a beautiful implementation of a utilitarian function. So her objection to modern art, in a word, was that it doesn't do what art is... Designed to do, and yet it offers itself up as art.
0: Yes, I definitely don't want to end on something uh, as negative as non objective art. So I wonder if you could just say a few words about how Ayn Rand's theory of art has helped you get more out of art.
1: Well, that's interesting that you should ask that because before I read Ayn Rand, when I was 16 years old, I went to Europe and I looked. And um, I, I went on a student tour, and we were shown all the great artworks of Europe, and they completely fell flat with me. I went to the Sistine Chapel, looked up at the ceiling, and thought, so what? A couple of years later, I understood the, what art is doing. I always loved music uh, and, and literature. Those are easy But I understood that the artist in a painting or a sculpture is saying, this is man. This is reality. This is life as I see it. And when I returned to view those artworks as an adult, I was blown away. I understood them. And of course, I had seen reproductions before then. But I understood that this isn't just a picture. This is a little view out onto the universe. There's a window into the universe and into the soul. And once I understood that, I didn't have to like crank by hand uh, a understanding or a theory or do anything to generate the response. I simply got it right away. So it can tremendously increase your enjoyment of uh, the arts that are a little bit less accessible like painting and sculpture and architecture by knowing that what this is, is life as the artist sees it. And it's either what the way you see life, in which case you'll love it, or it is in which case you won't.